in Isaiah 65th chapter and again in Isaiah the 66th chapter, we find words in the Hebrew scriptures that talk about new heavens and a new earth. We find words that talk about how life will be one continual act of worship when that day comes and God has set right the things of this earth. We read about where the sea will be no more, recognizing that in the symbolism of the sea, we're talking about evil that will pass away. And we smile. We smile because it's hard for us even to conceptualize a place called earth where evil is not rampant, where struggle is not present, where children are not hungry and where no one is crying, where death has been vanquished. We smile because evil beats us down year by year as we live in this earth to the best of its ability. And then we laugh. Because the truth of the scriptures and the truth of eternity lets us be reminded moment by moment, experience by experience, that Jesus is coming back to this world to make it all that God intended it to be. And we laugh because we know that we are a part of that new Jerusalem, that holy bride that will be joined with Christ upon this earth in that day. Earth is not going to be destroyed. It's going to be recreated. It's going to become completely new it's going to become what God intended it to be these Old Testament themes that they clung to were not fully understood in the day in which they were written they had dualism in part in, in the sense that they meant more than one thing but as we look back upon them after the life death and resurrection and the inspiration of the scriptures we begin to put together the entirety of the book we call the Bible we begin to get a picture of life that is quite different from what we often experience here, at least in its complete sense. And it's that I want to talk about today. I chose these passages of scriptures to read, not because I'm going to explain their meaning verse by verse. I know some of you are waiting for that sermon series on Revelation. You're going to have to wait a little longer. But the reality is I want us to begin here this morning because really this ending is our beginning. I'm going to say more about that in a few moments. In verse 3 and 4, the story really begins to unfold. But I know you've just heard it read, and it's a long passage of Scripture to, to read. As Cindy told me, I was going to wear her out if she reading that long passage of Scripture today. My intention is not to wear you out, but my intention is to give you a good picture. And I want you to kind of contemplate this. It begins by saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away. Now I want you to do something. Okay, it's going to be a little bit weird, and some of you are not going to hang with me to the end. I know that, and that's okay. I want to invite you now to just get really comfortable where you're sitting. Just really be relaxed. Just so relaxed that, not that you're going to go to sleep on me, but that you're going to be very relaxed. And then I want you just to close your eyes now. I want you just to Allow your mind to be perfectly at ease. To imagine that you are indeed about to see a vision for yourself. Not to try to analyze it, but just to receive it. God will dwell with men. That the glory of God will be shown moment by moment as we live with God. 
because God is coming, returning to the earth he created to have fellowship with his people and to make good his original created design. And the people who love him and who are living in faith will be with him. No one will be sad. There will be no tears except tears of joy. Death will be no more present. In this place, there is no one grieving, no one hurting, no one hungry, no one lonely. And we hear the words resounding around our world. These words are faithful and true. God has made all things new. For he is the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha not only in the sense that he was first in a, in a point in time, but rather he was the beginning, the source of all things. Last, not simply in the sense that it was the end of a point in time, but last in the sense that the end is the goal of God from the beginning of creation. And as you marvel at these things that you're hearing and that you're experiencing, you are witnessing these old orders, orders of the life that become familiar to, to you that now are being fulfilled by the new, by God's original intention for creation and their, its fulfillment. Those who remain faithful will enter into these things. The one, ones who do not will be cast aside. You who have remained faithful are overcomers. You have overcome the evils of the world of the first earth and remain faithful. You have fought the good fight. You have kept the faith. And now the new earth is yours. And now, let your eyes drink in the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the picture of the end of creation as we know it, and creation's fulfillment as God intended it to be. Now you may open your eyes. This end must be our beginning. Christianity really can only be lived from the perspective of its fullness when we live it with the, re with the reality that we know what the end is and it changes our new beginnings day by day, moment by moment. Christianity cannot be lived within our own strength, nor was it ever meant to be that way. In the fallen world in which we live, we will be challenged, we will be hurt, there will be tears, there will be loss, there will be pain. But it is also true that those who are overcomers, who are people of faith, know that there is a better day coming, a day coming when the end will be reality in the present, if you will, when the end will become our beginning. But there's another sense in which it becomes even more present in the world in which we live because it becomes the why of how we respond as individuals, as
as the church and as a part of the kingdom of God. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit. In a book recently written by L. Gregory Jones called The Social Innovation, he uses this term a lot when he says the end must be our beginning. And he sees this reality as the way that the church will be reformed and reconstructed in such a way that it will be faithful to the generation in which it finds itself. And rather than becoming a dying institution and a dying church, the church, meaning the believers of Christ, will be so united when they contemplate the end that the whys of their life can be filled in with purpose and meaning and with courage. Not that the battle will be easy, but that the battle will be won for every believer in Christ. The truth is, when we come to Christ as adults, or when we come to that place of maturity, perhaps we've had a childlike faith, and then we begin as youth to put it together so that the faith begins to grow, in which we know that everything is not simple and everything is not easy. When that time comes to us and we begin to struggle with it, it's there where the real battle for our faith begins in our lives. It's there where we really begin to struggle against that which is evil in the world in which we live. It's that when, which causes us and pushes us, if you will, back to the end that we know is coming for us all. Because you see, whenever we trust in Christ in faith, when this new life with God begins, a lot of things happen in the beginning when it begins to get real. Now, I'm not talking about when we're faithful because our parents drag us to church. That's not a bad thing, but it, it is a part, type of beginning when we're not fully in control. No, I'm talking about when we really begin to process our faith as young teenagers or as adults, whenever that time comes, and we begin to try to live into this new reality that someday God is going to renew the whole earth, we are experiencing it in the present because we have been born again. We call that the new birth, right? We've been born again to a living hope. To a hope that buoys us and strengthens us as we struggle forward. And it's in that new hope that believers find new purpose. It's in that reality of new birth and forgiveness, of trust in Christ. It's in that experience of repentance and the drawing to be more like Christ. In that desire to worship. It's in that desire to be with God, to fellowship with God, and to follow Jesus that our life is expressed. The difficulty becomes that as the newness of that experience wears off, if we're not careful, and as the struggles of life begin to kind of push us and tug us and try to convince us that that thing we call faith is really not all that real, it can't be really literal or happening for me, that we begin to waver at some times in our lives. As the hymn just uh, rang out as we sung it together, we are prone to wander. We are proud prone to wonder because sometimes we lose sight of the end. It's my contention this morning, simply put, that if we could always keep our end in mind as individuals and if we could always keep the end of the earth in mind as a body of Christ, then individuals and the body of Christ could remain faithful to such an extent that the world would be amazed and the world would be drawn to it. Now, let's take a couple of examples. Youth go on mission trips, right? They go to the beach in Galveston and do some work with the poor, with the starving, with the hurting, with children who don't have all that they need in support. And if they went by themselves, it would be hard. They would be wandering around a lot and trying to do something. But when they go together as a church, they're strong. 
And when they're strong together and they take in people into their group in the new community that they're put in touch with in that place in Galveston, then the lives of those teenagers are changed because they know somebody cares about them. They experience what it's like to be part of a group, and a hunger begins to form in them whether they respond to it or not. It's beginning to form in them because of what you have done when you've been most like the church, when you've been moving together not for your own benefit but for the benefit of someone else. Let's take another example. Let's take a man. He's a short little guy. Yeah, I'm short. He's shorter. Aren't you, Luke? Where are you? Where are you sitting? Luke had a vision. He and his wife had a vision and a dream. There needed to be a home for girls in India. Now, if I'd have been Luke, and God is so thankful I'm not, after about the first three months of that and nothing happening, I'd be sitting down on the wayside saying, woe is me. When did you begin with this vision? Luke, tell me. When did you begin with this vision to build an orphanage in India? 2009, thank you. 2009. My gosh, I was still in Frisco. My gosh, 2009. My oldest daughter wasn't married yet, was she? Let's see. Yes, she was. She's already married. That's why Sally's here to fill me in with the details. Obviously, I can't even remember what I was doing in 2009, right? I can't even remember it. Because I'm more of a guy who's like, let's do something right now, tomorrow. But God put a vision that was too big to be done tomorrow in the heart of Luke and his wife. And he had the patience and the prayerful diligence to wait for God to provide the money and the means and the timing to where today, now, is a reality for nine girls who are living in a place they would have never lived before. My friends... That is not because that they knew right away exactly how it was going to happen. That's because they had a vision of the end at the beginning. So often we don't have a, a vision of where we're going. I remember so, so distinctly a few things that I can remember. And one of them is when I was called into ministry, it was because of the frustration I felt about the congregation I was a part of that didn't seem to know where they were really going. They didn't really seem to have a purpose other than having Sunday school and youth and worship on Sunday mornings. They didn't seem to really be united in something that was worthwhile and called from them sacrificially and completely their total devotion to God. It seemed to me as I looked around that a lot of churches were that way. They were going through the motions with a form of being Christian but lacking the passion and the power of the presence of Jesus Christ in their life. It seemed to me that something needed to happen to make those folks take their lives seriously. After all, as in my young 20s, I'd been faithful for a whole year or so. Why, why would they, should they be tired after following Jesus for 60 years? You get the sense of what I'm trying to say? That what I'm trying to say is it's that clear picture of, the, of an end that makes our beginnings doable. It's the difference between People building a hospital because they want to care for people and people building a hospital because they're inspired by God to provide care for the sick. One is built on the idea of running a good institution. Another is built at the response to God's word. And when we live according to God's word, then we can do amazing 
abundant things, more than we can ever ask or imagine, if only we can keep the end in mind. Someday, despite what all the skeptics say, I wish it could be where I could watch it from here, and it may, who knows, but if I can't watch it from here, I'll get to watch it from heaven. That day when no telling how many millions and billions of people in the world, unfortunately, are going to go, uh-oh, uh-oh, those crazy Christians were right. The dude is coming back. People say, well, that can't happen. Yeah, and God can't speak and create the world too, right? And that which we can't imagine can't be real, right? Because after all, if God's not small enough for us to completely understand, it can't, can't be real, can he? And yet we know the scriptures teach us that God is so much bigger than what we can understand. God only gives us about a thumbnail of reality because that's all our little tiny minds can handle. Otherwise, it would blow us out of our seats. We wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. People say, well, that's kind of insulting. Good, you're getting the point. God is so much bigger than we are. God is so much more powerful than we can imagine. God is so much more loving than we can ever experience. And he's coming back. He's coming back to live among us. And our daily experience will be that. Oh, my goodness. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And the appropriate answer to that question is no, we can't. Because from our reference point, the world has always been populated, if you will, by a lot of evil, by a lot of struggle, by a lot of hurt, and by a lot of pain. And yet we know that that time is coming when Christ shall return. Now, because we have trouble and we're prone to wander, as individuals, sometimes we get out of contact with God because we just wander. It's hard to keep our attention. There are bills to play, retirement funds to build up, neighbors to have fun with, parties to go to, things to do. There's all kinds of life to live. And a lot of the times we get so busy living that life that we're not living it from the perspective of the end, but rather living it simply from the present reality of what it takes to get through this day. You see the difference between the living of one way and the living of another? It's the same thing with churches. We're taught in recent years that churches, when they are new and they get started, they grow so much faster and attract the unsaved so much more than established churches. And we ask ourselves, why should that be? They don't have a proper building. They don't have proper funds. They don't have the properly educated Christians. Why is it that new churches grow so much faster than new churches? Because new churches have a vision of a future that old churches have grown comfortable without. What happens on the national stage when that happens is that you just follow the path of Christianity from where it was born around the traverse of the world. We see now that it's exploding in Africa, in the Philippines, and in other places. While behind it, we find in the wake of that, the church that is not strong, that is crumbling. And people will keep asking the question, why? But they fail to look back at the beginning. They fail to look back at the end that is our beginning, and they fail to allow themselves to be motivated by the end in their everyday life. John Wesley wrote about it in his century. In a, one of his many sermons, the sermon is entitled, On Living Without God in the World. 
And really what he, he writes and coins a phrase that has been used since then by several people called practical atheism. Now, by practical atheism, John Wesley did not mean atheists in the common sense of the word where they didn't uh, believe that there was a God, no. In fact, he, he said almost everybody believes that there's some kind of God in his day and age. That's what he wrote. But what he does write is that when he's talking about practical atheism, he's talking about Christians who are living as if they are practical atheists. And he says, what I mean by that is that they, that they do not have God in all their thoughts. He says, what I mean by that is they don't really know God because they haven't spent the time to get to know God. They haven't become acquainted with God enough to where they really understand God and God's ways. And then finally he says, it's because they don't really have fellowship with God. Oh, they go to God and pray and ask for things, but they don't have fellowship. They don't have a mutuality of existence. They don't have a common conversation that's guiding their daily activities. They have fallen away in that sense with talking to God constantly about what's going on in their life. Now, obviously, this isn't everybody, but this is a description for Christians who have forgotten where they're headed, I would say, who have lost track of what being a follower of Christ really means. When we think about that, we would say perhaps they have forgotten the story of God's love and redemption as they have personally experienced it themselves, and it has become something that happened in their past rather than something that is present, present and powerful and filled with new beginnings. The end is not their reference place for life. They tend to forget that the life of faith lives with the end as its primary purpose. And the new beginnings that were so prevalent when they began to follow Christ have been beaten down by the cares and concerns of this world. And the overcomers have become overcome. Now, the opposite of this is the last picture I want to give of Jesus, and I'm through. I may be long. I don't really care this morning. Uh, if you're timing, uh, you know, good luck. So, at any rate, here's the thing. The, the, we've talked about God in so many ways. The God of forgiveness and love and power and might. The God of, who, is, who wants us and calls forth good things in us. We've talked about uh, Jesus who's passionate. But today I want us to talk about Jesus, the fearless dreamer. The fearless dreamer. And I, I just want you to keep that mind, that thought in your mind, that Jesus is a fearless dreamer in regard to your life, in regard to the life of the church, and in regard to the kingdom of God. And it's because Jesus always has the end as his beginning. Jesus knows that he's coming back to earth. He knew he was coming back to earth when he crawled upon that cross. He'd already told him that. He knew he was coming back to earth when people were turning away from him. He knew he was coming back to earth when he spent all that time with those 12 knuckleheads. I mean, goodness gracious, three, two and a half years of trying to get these guys to get it, and so often they didn't. But Jesus wasn't discouraged by that because he was fearless in the dreams he had for those people who were going to start his church. Now, I'm not talking about a dream that's something you have at night when you go to sleep and you've eaten something that didn't agree with you. I'm not talking about nightmares either. I'm talking about dreams in the good sense where you're looking forward to what's in the future. In that sense, Jesus is a fearless dreamer. He does not see me as I am. Thank God. 
Jesus sees me as what I shall become next week, next month, next year, next decade, in eternity, wherever I am. Jesus is constantly seeing me as evolving toward that which I can be. And the only thing that can get in the way of that process and that dream Jesus has for me is me. You say, well, now, wait a minute. There's all that evil out in the world. That evil can't do squat in my life. You say, well, it can hurt you. Yeah, it can. It can take what I love away from me. Yeah, it can. But it can't kill the dream that God has planned for me. It can't take away my faith in Jesus Christ. It can't take away my, my life eternally. Why would Liz go over there in that dangerous place and try to help those kids? Because she's fearless. That's why. That's why I'm having breakfast with her tomorrow morning. Don't let me forget it. 9 o'clock. I'm buying. I know you're not eating. That's why I'm generous. The reason is she goes over there, and I'm hearing these stories, and I'm going to say, Liz, um, darling, be careful over there. And she says, laugh, I love it over there. And I think, you crazy woman. But that's God's dream for her to be right where she is, and that's where she's going. And all the evil in the world is not going to prevent her from it. That's why Luke had that dream about the orphanage. That's why Chiv goes back to Cambodia, and he's not terrified of the people in charge. That's why we go down the street and knock on our neighbor's house or see them out in our yard and we stop to talk to them and first of all they're shocked by it's because we're stopping to talk you know we thought we were out for exercise but really we were out to witness we were walking around saying God is there somebody lonely around here that I can talk to maybe a squirrel a rabbit you know a dog a human would be good a nice one would be better but somebody Lord that it will give me the excuse or the opening or the chance to start a friendship with. Just like you started one with me, God, when I was so unfriendly to you, and yet you befriended me. You see, if we have the end as our beginning, our lives change. And I want to say simply that we need to be fearless dreamers like Jesus for ourselves. I think I'm not going to use a word again anytime soon until it's a reality. Say, what does that word does? I've been convicted lately to not use the word retirement because I've used it too much lately. And I, I like to argue out loud, as Lauren often says. You know, you do all your arguments out loud. I say, yeah, I know. I don't have good sense about that. My wife has warned me about it for 44 years. I think out loud. I know that. I know that. So if you're wondering when I'm going to retire, give yourself a break because I don't know. I haven't got a clue. Maybe I'm going to work a whole lot longer than I thought. Maybe I'm going to forget about sitting on the sunny beach and playing golf. Doesn't mean I'm not going to cut a hole in that green carpet on the playground. <laughs> and Larry, I want to talk to you about that after, the, after service today. And I didn't have that thought, but when somebody else put it there that should have come from me, I thought, why isn't there a place out there for me to practice my chipping? You know, and... I got, I got to talk to you about that one, Larry. Just three or four little holes. Uh, the reality is you have been made for a set of dreams that I haven't and vice versa. But you've been made to dream. You say, well, I should have started a long time ago because right now I, I've passed the dreaming stage. Are you breathing? Are you done? You think you're done? 
You think there's nothing else that you could do for God because you, your hair has turned white or your arms have gotten slimmer? Some of us are praying to be slimmer. You're not done. Some of you think, well, I've got my life pretty orderly. I know. Mess it up. Get out of that order. Because most of your order is just taking care of stuff. Put God in your head. You've got a dream for God to perform a business for you. Then you act on it. And you count on it. And then when God does it, you give back to God tenfold. It's the same thing in any little junk, dumb job you're doing. We're all doing, well, now wait a minute. Most, a lot of us are doing dumb jobs, we think. They're not really helping anybody directly that we can see, but they may be a great place for you to do witness. You may be the only one dreaming where you live. When I went to work at the post, post office as a 20-year-old, it was a shock for me. Man, you talk about a bunch of old, wow. A lot of those folks have been walking up and down those stri- streets, sticking that mail in that box so long, that's all they thought they could do. And pretty soon I'd been doing it for two or three years, and I knew I needed to do something else. So God put me in a, a one-man post office as a postmaster. You know how lonely it is in a post house? Post office in a town of 200 during the day. You know what I did to keep from going nuts? I began by putting a TV and a reclining chair there. So 15 minutes after I did my job, I could start watching TV. You know how much TV there was to watch in 1980 during the daytime that was worth a flip? There was no sports channel, or I might still be there, right? There were soap operas. God, I came to hate soap operas. But in that stillness, in that quietness, I began to realize I wasn't doing anything with what God had given me. How about you? What are you doing with what God has given you? What new beginning is just waiting for you when you're willing to live the beginning from the perspective of the end? This church, we're in the same place. I'm going to read two verses. First of all, I'm going to read Ephesians 3. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to tell you what it says. It's important. Ephesians 3, 20, 21. God is able to do far more abundantly, far more abundantly than we ask or even imagine. It's like having AT&T Stadium at your disposal and you're watching TV on a 12-inch box. God is able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or imagine. And then the last verse is going to take us into what we're going to begin doing next week. I'm excited about where we're going with this pat with our studies next week because we are going to we're going to go to a place to continue with this idea that God is able to do more than we are able to ask or think. In fact, we're going to get really brave. We're going to have testimonies almost every week about a new subject. And each one of them is going to be an example how people have learned to do something unique. They've learned not just to be alive, but they've learned to thrive. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, 
He prospers. You were made to thrive. You've been planted by the stream of the water of life. You're not made for being bored. You're not made to bore someone else. You're not made to vegetate. You're made to thrive. And we're going to talk about that. Although many times in our life, the things that cause us to thrive are painful. And the first story we're going to hear next week is a testimony of Robert Shirley, who's going to come and talk to us about how much of a struggle he had in his early life and how he got a hold of that struggle. And now, for the first time in his 20-odd years, he's learning to thrive. And just like he did it, you can do it too. And just like individuals can do it, churches can do it. That's why when people say, well, I don't know what's going to happen to our church. Well, I do. I know. We're going to thrive. You say, well, I don't know how you're going to talk about doing it. I didn't say I knew how we were going to do it. I just said we're going to do it. As soon as we all get to be one mind about it, as soon as we all make up our mind that we were put here to help this church to thrive, we're going to set aside some of our personal agendas, and we're going to get busy with God in thriving in this place with the end as our beginning. We're going to be thinking about Carrollton not as a place it is, but as a place it can become. We're going to be thinking about individuals, not where they are, but who they can be. And you say, well, how are you going to do that? I don't know. I got a few ideas. God told me you had a few ideas. God's not lying, is he? God didn't put us here to die, did he? He put us here to thrive. He put the church here to thrive. And while I'm alive and while you're alive, we have no business standing on the sideline most of the time in our lives and watching the organized church die. God, forgive us. God, forgive the church and give us a new beginning that people will start to see the power and the breadth of the power of love and forgiveness and grace in their life that God will begin to see that there's something that really matters and that something is Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you think you've been struggling all your life and you don't know how you're ever going to get beyond it, I can tell you how. Only one way to get beyond the struggles of this world and that's to get into contact with, with God through Jesus. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then your struggles are not going to get better except for what little puny you can accomplish. And let me tell you something. I don't care how smart you are, I don't care how intelligent you are, I don't care how strong you are, how much you trip either, as far as that goes. You're not enough of any of that to really thrive. But in Christ, you can. And if you don't know Christ, we would love to introduce you to Christ today. If you know Christ, but you've been out of contact a little bit with him, you've not been a part of a fellowship of believers, you know a little bit about him, but you've never gotten to know him, you need to be part of a community where they're teaching Christ, where they're sharing about Christ, where they're celebrating the victories in Christ. And you can do that here with us. All you have to do is let us know you want to be a part of it. All you have to do is come forward, Richie, stand and sing, which we're going to do right now. Let's stand up.